Anticipation is good for the soul. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, Lord, it's a given that um, we need help when talking about the Word of God. We need to have hearts that are prepared and, Lord, just a, a knowledge and a, an acknowledgement that it's all about you and not about us. So I just pray, Father, that you would use your word to soften our hearts and open our eyes and draw us ever closer to you for your glory. Amen. Um, I wanted to... We're going to skip all the way to almost the end of the book of Revelation. But first of all, I just wanted to say something about a book that you may or a lot of you won't be familiar with. It's called the Didache. And the title of the Didache was The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, commonly called the Didache. It's the Lord's teaching to the heathen by the Twelve Apostles. This was a book, very thin, 16 chapters. Uh, They're not long. They're not hard to read. It's a compilation of a lot of it from Matthew. Originally, they thought it was written in the second century, but the the consensus now is it was written late in the first century. So a lot of the people that compiled this would have known some of the disciples. But just I just want to read a couple of verses out of one. Each chapter is really short. Out of the first chapter. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And between the two ways, there's a great difference. Now, this is the way of life. First, you must love God who made you. And second, your neighbor as yourself. And whatever you want people to refrain from doing to you, you must not do to them. And then there are a lot of other things that it goes on to say that are right from scripture it says this the second commandment of the teaching do not murder do not commit adultery do not corrupt boys do not fornicate do not steal do not practice magic do not go in for sorcery Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Now, can you be any plainer than that? So, to the people that think that um, Scripture doesn't address it very forcefully or openly, this is exactly what a teaching manual for the early church says. And it's taken, all of this comes from Scripture, just to put it down in plain words for the heathen, for the children to understand. And this thing, the the Didache was written, like I say, in the early first or the late first century, and it was lost for hundreds and hundreds of years. And finally, in the, was it the 18th or the 19th century, 
a full copy of the Dedarche was found. And it's since been um, published uh, over and over and over again. You can download it on the Internet. And again, it's not that long, but it's very straightforward. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It says what Scripture says. So I just want to bring that to your attention. And it, what, he, what it says about abortion is just, you know, it's just truth in your face. And it just disgusts me to see all the things that people do to jump around and make Scripture say things that it doesn't say or ignore what it does say. You know, Revelation, or Scripture in general, and Revelation in particular, ought to motivate us to live as God would want us to live in the light of what is to come in the days ahead. Revelation discloses that this world is headed for a devastating seven-year period of divine judgment, the rise of a final world ruler, a government, a global government, a global economy, and a final world ruler. It's a great white throne judgment a great war of Armageddon, the second coming of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and a final judgment, and a new heaven and a new earth. And Revelation tells us where this world is headed, and it tells us where we're headed. It's the only book in the Bible that contains a special blessing for those that read it and keep the things written in it. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And revelation, the word itself, the translation of the Greek word apocalypsis. It means to uncover, to unveil, to take the veil away, to take the lid off of something. The first 20 chapters talk about the destruction that's coming, all the, the horrible things that um, that are poured out on the earth. I want to skip to the 21st chapter to tell you what it looks like with a new heaven and a new earth after all the terrible things have come to an end. You know, because of its strange imagery, Revelation has puzzled a lot of commentators and Bible readers alike. You've got many people that think it's too obscure to be much value, but being obscure was the last thing in John's mind because he's told that this is to be revealed, to be opened up. It's a revelation, an unveiling, in which the Holy Spirit, through John the Apostle, intended that we should see things more clearly, not put up more of a cloud. The intent for us is to have our eyes of faith not fogged over by the circumstances of our present life. 
but to have the curtain raised to see the glory of the coming kingdom of God. When the book of Revelation comes to a conclusion, we find ourselves back at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and in the end, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. We see a new and a final paradise that have details of the original in it, but greatly exceeding the original. Just as God made a provision of a bride for the first Adam, John writes of the church prepared for her marriage to Jesus, who's the last Adam. So much of the language describing the new dwelling place for the people of God uses Old Testament language and metaphors, a lot of it coming from the book of Genesis. The reason for this is that from the beginning, God had in view the end. Even in the first creation, God had the last creation in mind. When he made the earth, he was thinking about heaven. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to the day when Jerusalem would be restored and its people made holy. Isaiah 65. Let me find it quickly. Semi-quickly. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing, and for people and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Revelation 21, which we'll read in a moment, shows this promise of a new Jerusalem, shows that it's going to be fulfilled. It comes down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Son of God came to earth to purchase this bride with his blood, to redeem her from the defilement of sin and take her as his wife forever. The first eight verses of Revelation 21 reads, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, nor crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, 
for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The renovation of the old order is a recurring theme in apocalyptic literature. It's in Daniel, it's in Zechariah, and of course in Revelation. Peter spoke of the coming day when the heavens will be destroyed by fire and the elements will disintegrate in fearful heat in 2 Peter 3. But there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new Jerusalem symbolizes the people of God in their perfected and eternal state. A loud voice declares, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The Greek word means tabernacle. God and all of his glory has come to take up eternal residence with faithful believers. He's going to live with them and be their God. And that's the essence, essence of heaven, not streets of gold, or elaborate mansions of glory, but unbroken eternal fellowship with God. Yet there's some things missing in this new Jerusalem. Tears of pain, death, mourning, and crying. And later in chapter 21, we see that there are also certain types of people that are missing. No unbelievers, no abominable and sexually immoral people, no murderers, sorcerers, idolaters, or liars will live in that place. Heaven will be a place where sin is totally absent. Verse 1 also says, the sea is no more. That's pretty strange for a place now that, what, two-thirds of this planet is covered with water, the sea is going to be no more. Now, there's a debate about whether this is symbolic or <coughs> literal. But in Scripture, the sea is a symbol of chaos and destruction. <coughs> Israel never developed the thriving sea trade, and their great enemy, the Philistines, were sea people on the coast. And they ruled the coastlands. For John banished to the Isle of Patmos, the removal of the sea means that never again will God's people be separated from each other. In Revelation 13, the beast with ten horns and seven heads rises out of the sea. 
And it was by the sea that the prostitute, represented by the ancient city of Babylon, made herself rich. <coughs> the absence of the sea is symbolic of the fact that the last battle has been fought and won, and there's no more destruction there. In verse 5, the Lord God says he's making all things new. He says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And if there's any confusion as to who this is, Revelation tells us again. He's coming soon. He's bringing his judgments and rewards. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. There are different interpretations. Some people think that the heavens and the earth are going to be renovated, renewed, made over. And other people think it's going to be, they're going to be destroyed and something entirely new. Well, it seems like from all the scripture where it talks about in Isaiah and in, and in Second Peter and in Matthew where Jesus says heaven and earth are going to pass away but my word will never pass away and other scriptures there's going to be a brand new heaven and a brand new earth not one that's just been redone albeit better in the first verse in chapter 21 he says I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. If you go down to verse 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying in pain or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The word passed away in the first verse, and the word passed away in the fourth verse are exactly the same Greek word. And nobody would think that crying and pain have passed away means they're going to be renewed or restored to something else. They're going to be eliminated, done away with. So by inference, you would say that's exactly what it means in the first verse where the same word is used. There's no longer any sea. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. What's meant by heaven, Greg? Pardon? Say? What's meant by heaven? Is it the, uh, the universe, the, the atmosphere? I think it means the dwelling place of God. Why would that be unique? Well, you realize, of course, you're asking me questions that there's so much um, disagreement with about what does it mean this or that. Um, all of heaven can't mean what we think it means. And I'm not sure exactly how to answer your question, Wayne, to be honest with you. But I know that there's going to be a new heaven, which means it's going to, the one now is going to be done away with. God is going to remake it. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, not something that's renovated. 
renewed or whatever. And you see that, you will see in these next verses, this, this new Jerusalem that's coming down. Now, how long it stays in heaven before it comes down is also up to interpretation. But the size of it is astronomical. Some people think it's going to stay in heaven until after the tribulation when it will then settle on the earth. Other people know it's going to come down, you know, sometime prior to that. But uh, the best I can do is mumble and, squir- and quibble and say, I am not sure. The next verses. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great high wall and twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke to me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles its length and width and height are equal. Sounds like a cube, doesn't it? And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurement, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no light there, no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. 
and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying will ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So an angel carries John to a high mountain and says he will show John the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, radiating with the glory of God. And this new Jerusalem has got a high wall. A lot of translations say 144 cubics, which would roughly translate into 216 feet. The city is four square, with length, width, and height being the same. Again, a cube. It's got 12 gates, three on each side, and these gates will never be shut. They have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written on them. And the wall of the city's got 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And this shows that God's people from every age, Old Testament and New Testament, will share together in the glorious time to come. The angel who spoke with John had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, the gates and the walls. The city was 12,000 stadia on each side and 12,000 stadia high. And that's roughly 1,500 miles in length, width, and height. One theologian said this, a city this size in the middle of the U.S. would stretch from Canada to Mexico and from the Appalachian Mountains to the California border. The ground level of the city will be nearly 2 million square miles. This is 40 times larger than England and 15,000 times bigger than London. It's 10 times as big as France or Germany and far bigger than India. But remember, this is just the ground floor because it's 1,500 miles high. If the city consisted of different levels and each floor was 12 feet high, the city could have had or could have 600,000 stories. I hope you don't have to walk the steps. 600,000 stories if each story was 12 feet high. If they were on different levels, billions of people could occupy New Jerusalem with many square miles per person. Now, is this literal? Is this figurative? Normally speaking, when you have specific figures like this, it's literal. Uh, I don't know anybody that can absolutely say. The problem with so many things is that what was it? There's an old saying, amazing thing in, things in the Bible I see, especially those put there by you and by me. So 
a lot of people interpret things wildly without any kind of um, guidance to be doing something like that. The cube shape of New Jerusalem reminds us of the cube shape of the most holy place in the temple on earth, which is a copy of the temple in heaven. In 1 Kings 6.20, where it's talking about the temple that Solomon's building, it says the inner sanctuary was 20 cubics in in length, 20 cubics in width, and 20 cubics in height. So it's a copy of the temple in Jerusalem, which is a copy of the temple in heaven. Scripture says a city was pure gold and the walls were jasper. The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. Each of the twelve gates to the city was made of a single pearl and the streets of the city was pure gold. There's no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no need of a sun or a moon because the glory of God gives us light. Verses 24 and 25 presents a little bit of a puzzle. Well, for me it presents a big puzzle. And everything I read about it I was no wiser by the time I finished it. It says, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no light, no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Evidently, you've got a new heaven and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And there are people living outside of the new Jerusalem. And I don't quite know what the distinction is between these people living outside and living inside. And um, somehow or another, the thousand year reign comes into this. And I can't quite put it together and neither could the half dozen commentators that I read make a whole lot of sense to me. But that's probably my dullness of understanding. But the Word of God is not dull, and um, we're admonished not to add to it and not to take away from it. And it says, otherwise the plagues will be added to you. So it's not wise to speculate wildly on things like this. I'll leave it to one of you to let me know. But it appears that in the eternal state there are going to be people living outside the holy city. And one scholar said that the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into the city means that those among the saved who have honored positions on earth will ascribe the glory and honor that once was theirs to the Lord their God. This is the hope of the biblical prophets come through. Isaiah 63 says, Nations shall come to your light and kings 
to the brightness of your dawn. And Isaiah 60, 11 says, Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. And John concludes by saying, What Jerusalem is not open to, it's not open to anything unclean, or to anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter the city. And the last chapter, which we won't look at now, tells us that the time is near and Jesus is coming quickly. And it talks about the river that flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb and the tree of life on each side of the river. And it talks about the leaves that are meant for healing. And the question arises, if you pay attention to it, if there's no more pain and there's no more sickness and there's no more death, why do you need leaves for healing? And what seems to be the case is that the word that's used for healing there is not a physical healing, it's more like super vitamins that you don't have to take to heal anything, but they cause you to have the, the best of everything you can get with what needs to be in your body. It's, it's more of a psychological thing of it fills you with, the, with a, a life-giving understanding that, that, that's a constant peace. It's not a physical thing but it's a spiritual and emotional thing, which makes sense to me. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will enter the city. Verse 18 in the last chapter says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Maranatha, which means come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. It's a um, daunting thing for me to read this and realize how little I know and how much is takes a lot of lot of digging to, to see what kind of insight godly people have had throughout the centuries but God says it's worth it God says it's written for you it's an unveiling so it tells us to put your mind and focus on this so that you'll know what God has called you to do so that when the difficult things hit you 
you'll be looking at what's coming, what the ultimate thing is, and the ultimate thing is not now. No matter how distressed we get with what we see, it's not eternal thing, and it's not going to last but so long, and we're not going to last but so long. It's just, it's, it, to me, it's like that that song that we sang, Isaac Watt. Um, what was the name of it? When I Pardon? When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Yeah. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Now, there's some added stuff there that's not in the original. Charles Wesley, who wrote more songs than I can count, said he would give them all if he had been able to write that song. And it's a song that if you pay attention to the words, it's, you know, you, you pour contempt on all your pride. And that's what we should do when we read Revelation and try to figure out what's God trying to tell us other than be faithful. Jesus, I confess that I need your to shine your light on my understanding and to help me see more clearly to speak more clearly for all the glory belongs to you and we're so grateful that you're in our presence and we're in yours now and all the days to come in your name Amen